Hi, everyone, and welcome back to part five in our little CHP 10-year anniversary special program. Laszlo Montgomery here. Let's get right on it. We left off last time with Kissinger's trip recap memo, where he briefed his boss, Richard M. Nixon, on all the points discussed at the secret meeting held in Beijing with Zhou Enlai between July 9 to 11, 1971. In picking up where we left off, Kissinger had some rather interesting things to say to Nixon about Japan. In his memo, he had written, quote, Joe repeatedly expressed concern about the revival of Japanese militarism, and I have no doubt that the PRC relationship with Japan is in fact a serious matter for the Chinese. Joe maintained that the rapid development of Japanese economic power would inevitably carry rearmament in its wake. In this, he said that Japan's economic expansion would lead to political expansionism. And he pointed to the great budgetary increase of Japan's fourth defense plan over its predecessors as case in point. He quoted Sato as mentioning that Japan's rapid economic growth would permit this plan to be completed in two to three years rather than the five originally contemplated, end quote. Korea, plus the complicated India-Pakistan relationship, were also hot topics that Kissinger briefed Nixon on. Regarding India, Kissinger concluded his memo with this remark, quote, The Chinese detestation of the Indians came through loud and clear. Conversely, China's warm friendship for Pakistan as a firm and reliable friend was also made very plain. The lesson that Joe may have been trying to make here was that those who stand by China and keep their word will be treated in kind. End quote. This quote from Dr. Kissinger's memo really resonates today and was worth a mention. This was with concern to Zhou Enlai's thoughts regarding great power relations. Listen carefully. It went this way. Quote, Joe professed apprehension over the possibility that the U.S., USSR, Japan, and even India might collaborate to carve up China. He showed deep bitterness about the Soviets and contempt for their petty tactics. The Soviets, he said, were proceeding down the U.S. road and spreading their hands out too far. While he was confident that they would be ultimately defeated, he inferred that difficult times might be expected before this came about. Joe several times emphasized that China lacked the economic base to be considered a great power, but had no desire to be considered one, and indeed wished to avoid the kind of great power rivalry existing between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Zhou alleged that even after China's economy became developed, it would still not act as a great power. The Chinese clearly like to picture themselves as free from the vice of great power ambitions which have only served to stir turmoil in the world and brought problems for the powers themselves. They prefer to be cast in the role of championing the less powerful and fortunate countries of the world. Their attitude towards great powers now is a mix of hostility, suspicions, and fear. This may be rather disingenuous, however, for while they profess not to envy those who are indisputably great powers, they may be making a virtue out of a necessity, and their very interest in a U.S.-China summit has them playing a great power game. End quote. How prophetic to hear those words from 1972 in this early summer of 2020. Let me just quote one more excerpt from Henry Kissinger's memo in which he 
try to encapsulate the essence of the meeting and the future Nixon visit to China. Quote, I am frank to say that this visit was a very moving experience. The historic aspects of the occasion, the warmth and dignity of the Chinese, the splendor of the Forbidden City, Chinese history and culture, the heroic stature of Zhou Enlai, and the intensity and sweep of our tasks combined to make an indelible impression on me and my colleagues. These 48 hours and my extensive discussions with Joe in particular had all the flavor, texture, variety, and delicacy of a Chinese banquet, prepared from the long sweep of tradition and culture, meticulously cooked by hands of experience, and served in splendidly simple surroundings. Our feast consisted of many courses, some sweet and some sour, all interrelated and forming a coherent whole. It was a total experience, and one went away, as after all good Chinese meals, very satisfied, but not at all satiated. We have laid the groundwork for you and Mao to turn a page in history, but we should have no illusions about the future. Profound differences and years of isolation yawn between us and the Chinese. They will be tough before and during the summit on the question of Taiwan and other major issues, and they will prove implacable foes if our relations turn sour. My assessment of these people is that they are deeply ideological, close to fanatic in the intensity of their beliefs. At the same time, they display an inward security that allows them, within the framework of their principles, to be meticulous and reliable in dealing with others. Furthermore, the process we have now started will send enormous shockwaves around the world. It may panic the Soviet Union into sharp hostility. It could shake Japan loose from its heavily American moorings. It will cause a violent upheaval in Taiwan. It will have a major impact on our other Asian allies, such as Korea and Thailand. It will increase the already substantial hostility in India. Some quarters may seek to sabotage the summit over the coming months. However, we were well aware of these risks when we embarked on this course. We were aware, too, that the alternative was unacceptable continued isolation from one quarter of the world's most talented people and a country rich in past achievements and future potential. With Japan... Our task will be to make clear that we are not shifting our allegiance in Asia from her to China. On Taiwan, we can hope for little more than damage limitation by reaffirming our diplomatic relations and mutual defense treaty, even while it becomes evident that we foresee a political evolution over the coming years. With our other Asian allies, we will need to stress both our continued bonds and our hopes that reconciliation between us and the Chinese will serve the cause of regional peace. And in India, after the initial shock, our China moves might produce a more healthy relationship. For Asia and for the world, we need to demonstrate that we are enlarging the scope of our diplomacy in a way that, far from harming the interests of other countries, should instead prove helpful to them. Our dealings with both the Chinese and others will require reliability, precision, and finesse. If we can master this process, we will have made a revolution. End quote. 
So two days after Kissinger briefed Nixon at his San Clemente home, reviewing all these points from his trip recap memo, on July 15th at 7.45 p.m. in Los Angeles, Nixon spoke from NBC's Burbank Studios. He gave a seven-minute address to discuss with the American people, quote, a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. He laid it all out to the American people, and to say it was a bombshell of a story was quite an understatement. You can imagine how the Russians felt about all this. None of it was good for them, and they felt the pressure immediately. Suddenly, after months and months of obfuscating, a date was set for a Nixon-Brezhnev summit in May 1972. This had struck the exact raw nerve that both the U.S. and China expected it to. On July 25, 1971, Pravda ran a story that stated, quote, Any schemes to use the contacts between Beijing and Washington for some pressure on the Soviet Union are nothing but the result of a loss of touch with reality, end quote. Yeah, they were feeling it. Nonetheless, not even a week later, in an article in the party rag, Hong Chi Magazine, the CCP stated that the whole reasoning behind this meeting with the U.S. was that China had to ally itself with its, quote, secondary enemy, the United States, in order to, quote, isolate and strike at its primary enemy, the Soviet Union. And as a little bit of side drama to everything going on at this time, politically and geopolitically, Lin Biao, Mao's second-in-command and chosen successor, launched a botched coup d'etat and a failed assassination attempt on Mao in September of 1971, just two months after Nixon's dramatic announcement. The Chinese kept this Lin Biao matter under tight wraps, and outsiders could only speculate what actually happened. Even today... Almost a half a century later, let's just say, details are sketchy. This act was unprecedented in PRC history, and nothing like this has happened since. It's been said that Lin Biao launched this coup attempt in response to Mao's proposed opening to the U.S. Not everyone in China was in favor of making friends with Uncle Sam. But in 1971, halfway through the Cultural Revolution... There was only one single voice in China that mattered, and he wanted to keep going with this idea. A month after the Lin Biao incident, Kissinger flew back to Beijing a second time to personally take part in laying the groundwork for the presidential visit. Seeing as how the secret was already out, there was no need to sneak into Beijing via Pakistan this time. There were two things at stake for the U.S. that depended on the success of the planned 1972 visit to China by Nixon. First was the U.S.-Soviet summit, and second was negotiating an end to the Vietnam War. The tension from the Lin Biao incident was still in the air when Kissinger landed in October 1971. The communique that contained all the details both sides needed to agree on, it still wasn't finalized. And putting this all-important document to bed was the main reason for Kissinger's second trip, not to mention the whole visit of Nixon to China. It had to get done, but they were already pretty close. All the while, since August 1971, Secretary of State William Rogers was fighting the good fight in the UN to keep the Taiwan government in. You might say, like those whose 
proclivities leaned in the direction of Taiwan and the KMT government. He was trying to have his cake and eat it too. On the one hand, giving in to the reality that there was too much momentum in the normalization process with the PRC and allowing that government to take over the China seat at the UN. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. But on the other hand, in 1971, the memories of uh, the Flying Tigers and the whole gamut of goodwill that had been built up between Jiang and the Americans going back to the 1920s, it was too hard to let go, no matter how you sliced it. The U.S. was cutting Taiwan loose. Rogers and plenty of others, George Herbert Walker Bush as well, our 41st president, they tried so hard to hang on to their friends. The U.S. negotiators fought to the very end to give Taiwan the best deal possible, which, as it turned out, didn't amount to much. Where Taiwan was concerned at this moment in history, Zhou Enlai was in the driver's seat. Nixon surely knew as early as 1968 or 69, it was going to all boil down to this in the end, and that it did. A lot of politicians, not to mention plenty of American people, were devastated to watch this happen. Kissinger held immensely substantive talks with Joe during this second tete-a-tete that transpired between October 20th and 26th, 1971. During the initial meeting held in the late afternoon of October 20th, Joe once again invited Kissinger to speak first. And Kissinger used this opportunity to present the general position of the United States with regard to the matter of restoring relations. And once again, these words still resonate in these present cantankerous times. He said, quote, We are, of course, aware that our two countries represent different philosophical views. We recognize also, as the Prime Minister so eloquently pointed out to a visiting journalist, that the People's Republic does not trade in principles and neither do we. Nevertheless, we believe that the People's Republic and the United States have many congruent interests. It is no accident that our two countries have such a long history of friendship. We believe that peace in Asia and peace in the world requires your full participation. We will not participate in arrangements that affect your interest without involving you. We do not accept the proposition that one country can speak for all socialist countries. We believe there is really but one issue that divides us, which is in itself the product of history. If we can take account of each other's concerns on this problem, if we can agree on both a general direction and a process of resolution, as I think we can, then there will remain no fundamental obstacle to our relations. This is the attitude that determines President Nixon's actions. Mr. Prime Minister, when we met in July, you said that the announcement of President Nixon's visit to China would shake the world. Well, the world has been shaken. Our two countries have set in motion new currents, and for many nations, a whole new set of considerations arises when they conduct foreign policy. 
we have started a revolution in world affairs. But as you, Mr. Prime Minister, know better than we, it is the essence of any revolution that for a while the old coexists with the new. And I think we must sort out those questions which can be solved immediately, those which can be agreed in principle but take time to implement, and those that must be left to longer processes. End quote. Having already aired their most overriding concerns and having already laid the groundwork in the secret July visit, this second meeting was much more specific in what was to be agreed upon once Nixon flew into town, a date for which had not yet been nailed down. In his opening remarks, Kissinger added, quote, The major issues, of course, are those we discussed last time, of which we understand and recognize that the most important for you is the issue of Taiwan. In addition, we discussed Indochina, relations with other countries, such as the Soviet Union and Japan, South Asia, especially the India-Pakistan dispute, which we believe is taking very ominous turns, Korea, and some issues on arms control. We could shape an agenda for the president's visit, reach mutual understandings on what we might agree to say and do, and perhaps begin shaping the outlines of a communique, end quote. The next morning, October 21st, the talks continued at the Great Hall of the People. Mao and Nixon had both been briefed on the initial meeting and the content of the discussions. After laying out the broad strokes, now came the moment to work out the details, where the devil often dwells. With the main topics slated for the morning being Nixon's visit, Taiwan, and Japan, it was sure not to be a lighthearted chat. The start date for Nixon's visit was agreed to be February 21st, four months to the date that they were having this discussion. Specific details regarding whether the Nixon visit would last five or seven days remained. Kissinger first warned Zhou Enlai that this presidential visit, well, China was going to get an adult dosage of all the hoopla and everything that entails a U.S. presidential visit, all the complex technical details, matters of communications, security, protocol, and everything that was going to happen to get the whole shebang televised and recorded for posterity and broadcast all over the world. China, 1971, was a far cry from what it is today. And for the main event, the meeting between Nixon and Mao, careful attention was paid to this matter as both sides knew how important that handshake photo op and discussion was going to be. A lot was riding on that moment when it came, and no detail could be left unconsidered. They agreed that the meeting should be early, on the second or third day. Kissinger didn't know it yet, but whether this climactic moment happened or not depended entirely on the health of Mao. By 1971, Mao was suffering from a whole heck of a lot of physical maladies, and no one could say with any degree of certainty when Mao would be in the condition to meet Nixon, or if he'd even be alive when the time came. The Chinese talked as if this was no problem, but Mao's condition was never a sure thing from day to day, and it was nothing Zhou Enlai or anyone could do except put on their best face and adopt a wait-and-see attitude. These discussions between Kissinger and Joe contained all the substance. Over these five days in October, these two men, both very good at their jobs, hammered out the final details that both leaders, Nixon and Mao, 
would later give their assent to. Every one of these momentous topics, all of such profound regional and global importance, well, Joe and Kissinger expounded on all the possible merits of their respective positions, and both sides debated each point down to the minutest detail. The objective was to nail down this communique. This document would contain all the fine print about the way it was going to be from now on, so it was paramount to get this matter put to bed before Air Force One landed for this date with destiny. Both sides were very well aware that there was no sense for Richard Nixon to fly all the way to China and shake Mao's hand if there was nothing agreed to in advance. As the draft for the communique was slowly hammered out, each side painstakingly reviewed every word and how every possible meaning of each word might be construed by the people of their respective countries and before the whole world. These were all weighty topics that even in our day still resonate amongst the peoples of China, the U.S., and the other people with whom China and the U.S. had mutual concerns and interests, which I guess is pretty much everybody. With regard to Taiwan, though much had been agreed to, much also remained to be finalized. It was one thing to agree on a diplomatic solution, but no matter how much merit the agreed-upon points had, they still had to pass through the court of public opinion, both in China and the U.S. In this respect, both sides knew their side well, but not so much the potential impact it would have on the feelings amongst their other respective peoples. They knew how to play to their crowd. Zhou Enlai knew what the Chinese people wanted to hear. Let me quote from the transcripts how deftly Henry Kissinger was able to put it. Quote, I believe also that the formulations with respect to Taiwan go further than it would be possible for us to say on this visit. So what I would like to propose to the Prime Minister is the following. I believe that if this communique were published in this form, the impact on the United States would be exactly the opposite of what you intend. All of those who have sought improved relations with the People's Republic will be discredited because it will be said that the President came 12,000 miles in order to be asked to sign a document containing the sharpest possible formulations against United States policy. There must be some way of expressing your principles, which also maintains the self-respect of the American leaders. This problem is less acute in the section on general principles, in which there are only two or three sentences that can be considered offensive, but it is acute in the specifics. One other point, it isn't possible to refer to understandings in a public communique, we'll be spending the next two years explaining what the understandings were. With respect to our understandings, you have to rely on us to be farsighted. It is not in our interest to try to trick you. And if we try to trick you, you'll find out very quickly, and everything we are trying to do will be destroyed. We do not have to settle our differences. Indeed, we cannot on this visit, or maybe ever. But we do have to indicate that the visit marked some significant new beginning. Or why else is it taking place? We must be able to answer the question of exactly what was accomplished, and what was accomplished cannot be only things that we must do in response to Chinese demands. There are many forces on the right, and curiously enough, also on the pro-Soviet left and the pro-India liberal side, who would like nothing better then if this visit can end without any tangible progress, either in mood or in content, end quote. 
If you're wondering, gee, everything seemed to be going so well. What happened that made Henry Kissinger give such a pitch to Joe and Lai? Well, in the middle of the discussions, with both sides believing the communique was almost a done deal, Mao had second thoughts. Mao told Joe he had to make sure the communique spelled out China's position with regard to communist orthodoxy and all that that meant. And he said he wasn't backing down from this, and the Americans were welcome to state their view as they chose. These were Mao's principles, and seeing that the communique didn't contain any wording that attested to this, well, he strongly disparaged the document, and everyone on the Chinese side had to scramble to make it more in line with something you'd expect Chairman Mao to say. One of Mao's most basic principles was that peace could emerge only out of struggle, not as an end in itself. Henry Kissinger later said of Mao's sudden change of heart, quote, he put forward a draft communique that stated the Chinese position in uncompromising language. It left blank pages for our position, which was expected to be comparably strong to the contrary. There was a final section for common positions. At first, I was taken aback. But as I reflected the unorthodox format appeared to solve both sides' problem. Each could reaffirm its fundamental convictions, which would reassure domestic audiences and uneasy allies. The differences had been known for decades. The contrast would highlight the agreements being reached, and the positive conclusions would be far more credible. End quote. So with Mao placated on this point, they all dodged a bullet, so to speak. And with that... Let's close up shop, roll down the shutters, lock the gate for now. Next episode, we'll finish up Kissinger's October visit. If you made it this far, and I don't see why you wouldn't, thanks for listening. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, hoping against hope that you will drop everything you're doing when the time comes and join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast, a 10-year anniversary edition if I... Do say so myself. Take care, everyone.